0: From the True North Podcast Network, this is Philosophia, a show in which we discuss philosophical concepts of the classical tradition and their application to our lives today. I'm David Schenk, and on today's episode, we will discuss the eminently learnable skill of thinking clearly and carefully, more clearly and carefully than is our natural inclination, why it is so important, and what happens when we fail to. The business of thinking clearly, unfortunately, is something that academia hardly even teaches anymore from what I've seen. It isn't what people think it is. When you hear a lot of jargon tossed around in academia and in public K through 12 about critical thinking, run, turn and run from it. The overwhelming majority of that is vacuous. When I talk about thinking clearly, I mean specific, definable, and measurable things by that. Too often, the term critical thinking gets used vacuously. What do I mean when I talk about thinking clearly? I mean several things. Being careful about using Only those terms, the meanings of which you actually know and actually are clear. There is a lot of jargon in academia, especially in the humanities and social sciences. And the danger of such jargon, especially, is it is emotionally compelling language that they use a lot of the time. But in terms of actual intellectual content, too often there's very little there. What do colleges and universities fixate on nowadays in a lot of their course material in humanities and social sciences and their public presentations? Concerns about justice. What exactly, though, do people mean when they use the term justice? or when they use the compound term, social justice? What makes some instance of justice social versus non-social? And why is it that in all of those supposed critical thinking courses you've taken at university, no one ever bothered to present that question? What does it mean for something to be just or unjust? Philosophers have been worrying about this at least since the time of Plato, really, from before him. And ever since Plato, one thing that has been very clear to professional philosophers is if you think the concept justice is an easy one to define, the only reason you think that is because you haven't even looked at it yet. The people who use a term like justice as if They already knew what it meant. Use it that way because they haven't looked at it. Not because they do know what it means, but because they don't even realize yet the extent to which they don't know what it means. If you want to see someone show that, prove that fact in really clear terms, have a look at this book that, I know has become unpopular, but I still say it's a good one and you have no business calling yourself educated without reading it at least once. It's called The Republic by Plato. In there, the concept of justice is examined very carefully and closely. Have a look at just, you know, books one, two, and three out of The Republic. And you will see Socrates in... Pretty clear detail, spelling out just how much we don't know about what that term actually means. When in academia, we allow ourselves to use vague language, which is what jargon almost always is, we thereby allow ourselves to get away with a lot of sloppy thinking. We instinctively, intuitively suppose we know what we mean by some term. When in fact, too often we end up not succeeding in meaning anything by it. The real risk you see in in being incautious, in being imprecise about one's use of language. And this really is a bugbear of the humanities and social sciences. In philosophy, we work hard against it, but we seem to be mostly alone in that respect. Some departments of linguistics will work on it too, but only some. The real risk in allowing ourselves vague language, nebulous terminology, isn't merely some instance of the fallacy of equivocation where we think we mean X by our use of the term, when in fact we end up meaning Y by it. The real risk is we don't mean anything by our use of the term, but instinctively we suppose we do. One of the great philosophers of uh, the Enlightenment era, British philosopher, one of the real movers and shakers, he was not, in my opinion, the most systematic of philosophers, but he was brilliant. David Hume, in the branch of philosophy that I'm trained in, analytic philosophy, David Hume is a kind of granddaddy or great granddaddy. His emphasis in his two famous books on this is on being absolutely clear about the content of one's terms. What can you actually point to that attaches to your use of the term justice or your use of the term good or your use of the term knowledge. And if you can't point to anything that attaches to it, why do you suppose you're even using it meaningfully at all in the first place? There is a lot of emotionally compelling language that we have that when you look at it closely ends up Failing actually to assert anything. If we are going to prevent that, we're going to have to do two things, I think. One, stop using jargon. Just cut academic jargon out of your life and allow yourself only ever to use plain English, straightforward, when possible, monosyllabic. Plain English. Because those terms, the really simple, straightforward ones that everyone uses all over the place, the vast majority of those do have specifiable content where we really do know exactly what we mean by them. Whereas the fancy academic language, too often, too easily, They don't express concepts. They express emotionally swaying stand-ins for concepts. Pseudo-concepts parading around as if they were ideas, but on careful examination, there's actually no notion there in the first place. A lot of contemporary use of the term justice works that way. You challenge someone on what they mean by the term and they can't actually give you an answer and they get angry with you for pointing out that they can't actually give you an answer. And they think that because you're making them think more carefully about this, that you must be against their view. I ran into this as a professor of philosophy all the time. I was not against the person's view. I was trying to get them to spell out of you. And they got mad at me for demanding that they actually clarify it. If we want to learn how to think clearly, to train ourselves to think clearly and carefully, one of the first things we have to do is get rid of the academic jargon. Get rid of all the fancy terminology in which we are trying to make it sound as if it were deep and academically serious. If someone needs to trot out a bunch of Latin or a bunch of Greek in order to express an idea, they probably don't actually themselves understand it yet. If you really understand something, you can put it in plain English all the way through. You have to make yourself do it. I spent a long time in graduate school making myself learn how to do that but it is doable. There's the first thing that's needed. Here's the second. Don't get carried away with it. Don't allow the subject matter you're talking about or listening to someone else talk about become so emotionally compelling to you, so emotionally upsetting or so emotionally attractive that you stop looking at it carefully and clinically don't get carried away by your or someone else's emotional responses to something when we do this work we have to think as dispassionately as we can about it not just in order to figure out what's true and what's false but in order to get our heads clear on what the competing positions are in the first place. What is the view on offer? In order to get myself clear on that, I have to suspend my emotional reactions as much as I can and suspend my own opinions regarding stuff and just make myself try to figure out What exactly is the position in the first place? We'll worry about whether I buy it or think it's a bunch of hoo-ha later. See what I mean? That discipline of of suspending one's own sort of gut-level emotional reactions to various propositions, I've learned from experience over decades, you won't do it unless you make yourself do it. You have to do this on purpose in order for it to work out at all. Third concern, and this is one that even with training, it gets very tricky. A third skill in learning to think clearly is keeping your eye open for all the consequences Not just the obvious consequences, not just the consequences that you already have in mind and are looking for, or that you're already worried about and trying to address, all the possible consequences of some position. If I say, after reading a bunch of Hume and a whole bunch of other moral philosophers, come up with a definition of justice. And I want to figure out whether or not that definition is sound, whether or not it really does work, whether it really does succeed in capturing all cases of justice, but no cases of anything that isn't. I have to look at all possible counterexamples, all sort of little what philosophers call thought experiments for ways in which I might risk failing to capture the concept that I thought I had captured. If I endorse this moral theory over here, yes, it will have these obvious results that I already had in mind, but what about the non-obvious results? What else does this moral theory, if I endorse it, just by the laws of logic compel me to accept as a set of consequences? much too often and much too easily in academia among tenured professors chairs of departments we just don't look at that people don't pay attention to the consequences of their own commitments they pay attention to the consequences that they already had in mind they don't even look for they're not on the lookout for unintended consequences If you're gonna train yourself to think carefully and clearly about all of these questions, I say, you must train yourself to keep on the lookout for unintended consequences of any particular commitment you take, any particular proposition you end up endorsing. Those three, I think, are the principle, skills that need to be developed in order to learn how to think clearly uh, as we say on the fly like like in the middle of stuff. There is a fourth of course uh, when I was a professor I used to be my college's logic teacher. The science of thinking clearly just is the science of logic. That's what logic studies. Now technically, logic also studies, Thinking sloppily, those are called fallacies. But we study that in order to make sure we don't do it and don't let our students do it, right? So the way the study of logic works is you've got the fundamental laws of logic, which Russell and Whitehead proved over 100 years ago just are the fundamental laws of math. And then you've got, right, all the derivations from them, right, for the various rules of the system. You do also have formal and informal fallacies, botched arguments, right? Sometimes they're botched on account of their structure. Sometimes they're botched on account of something non-structural like definition of term. But we study fallacies and other errors of reasoning in order to not do it anymore, in order no longer to fall prey to them. The goal in logic is to train oneself into always and and only thinking clearly and carefully. And so you never suppose that this consequence over here follows from your moral theory, when in fact it doesn't follow. It's a plausible thing that could be a result of it, but it isn't guaranteed. Training in the science of logic trains you to notice when it doesn't follow. And you only instinctively thought it did, but it really doesn't. That is a fourth thing. In my opinion, in academia today, and certainly in K-12 education today, it's less urgent. It's less immediately necessary. There's less of a cultural educational crisis around that than there is around jargon, the abuse of it. And the kind of intellectual sloppiness jargon just naturally inculcates in us. The kind of vague, sloppy thinking that our vague, sloppy language so easily and naturally and unconsciously encourages in us. Here's a simple example of what I mean by people speaking incautiously and sloppily and thereby thinking incautiously and sloppily. I've seen it happen at Ivy League universities in top published work. Anthropologists and sociologists will talk about various epistemologies. Notice the plural use of that term. Now, epistemology just is the science of knowledge. It is a philosophical discipline. I used to teach it in a class called Epistemology and Metaphysics. Epistemology, I'll say it again slowly, is the science of knowledge. Knowledge is intrinsically a success term. That is to say, when we talk about knowledge, we are not talking about the mechanics of belief acquisition, or how people become convinced of certain propositions, we are talking about once someone is convinced of some proposition, when is their conviction justified by sufficient evidence or whatever, sufficient warrant or whatever it might be, right? When do they have sufficient objective support for their conviction, and when don't they? Epistemology has nothing to do with how people come by their beliefs or when they become convinced of something, what is it that is convincing them of it? All of that is irrelevant. So, for decades now, I've watched anthropologists, sociologists, social workers talk about, and people in educational theory talk about epistemologies in the plural where without them realizing it at all, they're not talking about epistemology whatsoever. All they are actually talking about is the different ways in which people come to their systems of belief. There is a fancy Greek term for that, right? That's called a noetic structure, a structure of belief. Hmm. And you certainly can look at, as an empirical question, how people come by their various systems of belief and how they come by, you know, the increasing conviction they have for their various systems of belief. None of that qualifies at all, though, as an epistemology yet. Ep- epistemology only comes in the door once we leave questions of belief acquisition and levels of conviction regarding belief and how those come about. We drop all the causal questions altogether and we look only at where some belief qualifies as knowledge, what makes it qualify? Where some belief does not qualify as knowledge and only qualifies as mere belief, what makes it fail to qualify? It's a simple, really simple analogy. Suppose I were to ask you how many square objects are in the room you're sitting in right now, or the car you're sitting in if you're in your car, in which case, please pay more attention to the road than you do to me. If you've learned basic geometry, you shouldn't have too much trouble finding your candidate square objects. If you haven't learned any geometry yet though, you might have difficulty with that. You might look for any four-sided polygon or any rectangular polygon and suppose that to be square, which it is not. When I ask what squareness is, I'm not looking for examples of it. I'm looking for what are the implicit underlying criteria whereby some geometric figure qualifies as square or fails to qualify. And when we do work in epistemology, our question is not, How does someone come by this knowledge? Or even, what does this person know? Overwhelmingly, the emphasis is on, what does it mean in the first place to call some belief a piece of knowledge or not a piece of knowledge? And furthermore, does the term knowledge apply only to beliefs, including implicit beliefs? Or might it apply to things beyond just the domain of belief? What are the limits of knowledge versus mere belief or mere conviction of some kind? That is epistemology. And that does not get used in the plural because the criteria for success or failure are the same here as they are anywhere else. Irrespective of who you are, why you are who you are, or how you feel about things. But outside of philosophy, it isn't that academics who haven't received the training in philosophy are unaware of the terms. It's that they read the terms, they think they know what the terms mean from philosophy, and so they never bother to look them up. And so they never even realize that the terms actually meant something subtly different from what they supposed. A lot of the fights that we have going on in American culture today and in academia and in the media are grounded in that error. I think Mary means by her proposition or by her utterance, say, on uh, some news show, this claim over here, when in fact, She did not mean that by it. She meant something subtly different because she was using some term that I also use to mean something different from what I usually mean by it. And if I don't notice that, I'll get very upset with Mary for advancing this proposition or advancing this theory that I think is clearly false and also clearly very destructive and, you know, a terrible thing for people to advance. And I'll never even stop to notice. But that wasn't even what she said in the first place. We are shouting at each other in America so much today, especially in the media and in academia, not because we disagree on various propositions, but because we have failed to pay attention to what each other even means or what we ourselves even mean by them in the first place. We have failed to notice how much Of this terminology, we use emotionally, which means intellectually, emptily. And we get so upset because we think people are disagreeing with us, when in fact, we haven't even produced any meaningful propositions for them to disagree with yet. And we don't notice it, and they don't notice it, and everybody ends up angry at everybody. A huge swath of public debate in the media today and debate in academia is going like that if we train ourselves to think carefully and clearly about all of these terms before we let ourselves use them so confidently and cheerfully. We can head a lot of that off at the pass. Here's a straightforward example of why... Thinking carefully and clearly about the exact meanings of our terms is so important. I used to do this to my students in my Intro to Philosophy class at university. Because this is classical academic press, I'm operating under the assumption that the majority of my audience is Christian. Of whichever denomination, I don't care. Therefore, I'm operating under the assumption that most of you believe in souls. Okay, great. Suppose I am Mr. Hard-nosed new Atheist. Further suppose I don't know what a soul is. I've never heard the term before. Describe it for me. Give me two meaningful sentences about what a soul is and distinguish it. Be careful, distinguish it from the mere information of psychology or neuroscience or anything like that sort of stuff. So if you start talking about, well, that's our beliefs and our attitudes and all that sort of all of that we can just tuck inside of neuroscience. If you think there is such a thing as an immortal, indestructible soul, describe it for me. What's it like? What's it do? On what basis do you know? that you have one. What is your evidence for its presence? Most of my students at a Christian college could not give me two meaningful sentences by way of response. Actually, they could not give me one. And I knew that before hitting them with this example. I used it in order to show David Hume's point about how easy it is to slip into vacuous speech when we don't make ourselves define our terms carefully and clearly and exactly before going around using them. You see how that goes? Now, for the record, let's be clear on this, I am convinced of the reality of souls. I had to become convinced of it, though. And I do have a candidate definition of what a soul is, but it wasn't obvious and it wasn't easy to arrive at. I had to work at it. It might be a bit anticlimactic for you that I'm actually not going to give you the definition this week. People want the definition. They can shoot me an email, but before next week, spend some time pondering this. If you're so convinced you have a soul, what is it? Describe it to yourself. And if you can't, which is most of us, ask yourself this next obvious question. Why has this never occurred to me before? Why did I never wonder what I meant by the term? Because you've been using it for a long time now. Why did it never occur to you that you might need to define it? Join me next week in which we will discuss the nature of the human person and how that category, personhood, has been lost in recent decades. This has been Philosophia. Thanks for joining, and I hope to see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the True North Podcast Network, produced by Classical Academic Press. For more information on Philosophia and the other shows on the True North Podcast Network, visit www. True